Our topic today is environmental philosophy and hazardous wastes. There are lots of benefits to living in a high-tech society, but there are also many risks that come with living in a high-tech society, including dangerous waste products. How do we uh, handle the risky chemicals that much of our lifestyle depends on and at the same time keep our environment safe and beautiful? So I want to talk today about the disaster at Love Canal, New York. It's, I think, the most famous toxic waste scare in American history. It's also a case that has shaped environmental thinking and activism hugely for two generations now. So what, uh, what's the lesson of history here? I want to start, though, with some good news about the Love Canal case. It was 1970s, and there have been a number of long-term studies. Unfortunately, they've shown that there have been no increase in the rates of cancer or birth defects among Love Canal area's residents, and that's very welcome news. Even though there were toxic chemicals released into the environment, hundreds of homeowners and their families, they were frightened, dislocated, and on top of that, there was huge loss of uh, property value. Now, here's the bad news, right? The Love Canal case is a classic example of, unfortunately, bad journalism combined with bad philosophy. Almost five decades now, that combination continues to infect our public thinking and public policy. Now, the story of Love Canal begins in the 1940s. The Hooker Electrochemical Corporation acquired some land, the Love Canal area, Niagara Falls, upstate New York, close to Canada. And it intended to use it as a dump for byproducts from its chemical manufacturing. Now, before the 1940s, the U.S. Army and the city government itself had used this site as a dump as well. So Hooker Corporation engineers, they tested the site. They judged it to be safe. Inspectors from both local and state governments also approved the site's use upon investigation. The various governments involved with jurisdiction then issued appropriate permits. Hooker then proceeded to use the Love Canal site until the early 1950s, at which time it sealed the site, put over it an impermeable clay covering, and then left it alone. Now, we fast forward, say, two decades to the 1970s, which was when the disaster struck. Some Love Canal residents started to notice seepage into their homes, and they notified the authorities. Uh, very ugly, foul-smelling, discoloring seepage. The authorities then identified the seepage as toxic chemicals. The residents naturally outraged, scared, frightened, wanted something done. Reporters from all over the country converged upon Love Canal. The story went national. It went international. President Jimmy Carter at the time declared Love Canal a disaster area, and then eventually about 900 families were relocated. Now we turn to the importance of the journalism and the philosophy. In the press, Hooker Corporation faced widespread condemnation. Activist Ralph Nader, a huge name at the time, denounced it as a, quote, callous corporation, unquote, that clearly and obviously and willfully dumped chemicals into the environment without caring about public safety. The Atlantic Monthly, a huge public intellectual journal in 1979, major article asked whether we can expect privately owned corporations to act responsibly and suggested that their profit motive makes them care more about money than the health of people. Of course not, the article implied. Hooker soon faced over $2 billion in lawsuits. 
The federal government's Environmental Protection Agency quickly enacted many new rules about how corporations must handle waste. In 1980, U.S. Congress approved Senator Al Gore's then $400 billion Superfund bill to address the nation's toxic waste sites. And in large part then because of Love Canal, an environmental philosophy became entrenched in our public consciousness. And it goes something like this. Uncaring. Profit-hungry corporations are poisoning our environment, causing birth defects and cancer, and only government can save the day. Now, that narrative, however, in the case of Love Canal, is pretty much exactly the opposite of the truth. So, here's some more important history to factor into our thinking. Also in the 1950s, early uh, after Love Canal, the landfill site had been closed by Hooker Corporation and sealed, the Niagara Falls Board of Education wanted some land because it wanted to build some new schools. It uh, looked around, it liked the Love Canal site, so it approached the Hooker Corporation and asked to buy the land. What did the corporation do? Well, it refused to sell. The corporation pointed out to the school board that the site contained toxic chemicals and was uh, clearly inappropriate for a school. Now, note the narrative irony here. Right? A government wants to build a school for children on a chemical dump site, and a private property profit motive corporation is pointing out that that is really a bad idea. But the Board of Education, as a government agency, had the power of politics on its side. In this case, it has the power of eminent domain. Now, what is eminent domain in the American context? It's a label for a set of policies that give governments the power to take any piece of private property it wants. Eminent domain powers come from the so-called takings clause in the United States Constitution's Fifth Amendment. Governments can take whatever they want as long as it's for a public purpose and as long as just compensation is given to the property owner. Now, that's an ancient clause now by American standards going back to the 1700s, but over the years, over the decades now, over the centuries, what has counted as a public purpose has broadened amazingly as American politics has increasingly broadened its understanding of what governments should be allowed to regulate and control and do. Originally, at the time, public use meant something like, you know, land for government buildings, land for, in some cases, edges of, uh, of water that are essential for military bases, for the army, for the navy, and perhaps for roads. Now, over time, legislatures and the courts agreeing with them expanded that list to include pretty much any infrastructure goal and anything that would increase the government's tax base. After all, the money that governments raise by means of taxes are used for public purposes. So by the time we get to the 1950s, the Niagara Falls New York School Board, as a branch of government, had the power to override Hooker Corporation's refusal. Corporation said, this is our private property, we're not going to sell, but the government in this case can threaten to have the local government condemn the property and force the land sale. Eminent domain in action. Join Professor Stephen Hicks on his Adventures in Postmodernism tour next March in Australia, where he'll be giving you his insights and lessons on the subject firsthand. Find out what makes postmodernism attractive 
Why is it so dangerous? How has it evolved or mutated over the years? Does postmodernism have strong connections to neo-Marxism? What is the role of it in cultural wars, campus battles over free speech, political correctness, intellectual diversity, identity politics and the rise of Antifa and alternative right? What other political movements are now adopting postmodernism strategies and how do we resolve these issues of postmodernism? Stephen Hicks will be appearing in four major Australian cities throughout March 2019. He'll be doing an evening talk in Melbourne, Sydney Adelaide and Brisbane starting at 7pm and will be holding an all-day special event masterclass series starting at 9am on March 10th in Melbourne and March 16th in Sydney where he will delve even deeper into understanding postmodernism, its history and teach you valuable strategies to actually combat it. For full details and to reserve your tickets today go to truearrowevents.com Select the event to which you would like to attend, and if you hurry, you may even be lucky enough to get your tickets at early bird prices at a 50% discount. And while you're online, please leave us a review for the podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. Now back to the podcast. Now, under threat, the Hooker Corporation relented, and they sold the property to the city for $1. But in the sale contract and loudly in other public forums, the Hooker Corporation made explicit the property's history. It had been a dump site. There were a dangerous toxic chemicals in it. It expressed very strong opposition to the city government's plans to, uh, to build a school upon it. And it specified that under absolutely no circumstances should the clay barrier that's covering over the toxic chemicals be breached. Now, guess what happened next? The city government proceeded to develop the property. It uh, had sewer lines put in that involved punching the clay barrier, running sewer lines. It sold off some of the land to builders, to, uh, to developers. The developers then proceeded to construct homes upon the land. And as it had originally wanted, the government went ahead and built two schools and some playgrounds there. It's for the children, after all. So... Who are the bad guys in the Love Canal story? All of the above is a matter of public record, and early in the disaster, as it, uh, as it materialized in the 1970s, some critics started to argue that the Love Canal case was being mishandled in the press and that the wrong lessons were being learned. But the big corporations, bad corporations, good government narrative, that is a powerful narrative. It's very strong in the public consciousness and among our intellectuals. Those minority voices were barely heard in the outrage, the cries of greedy chemical corporations, and then the overwhelming demands that more control be given to governments to do something. Now, what's interesting is that almost four decades later, as we get into the 20-teens, that narrative, bad corporations, good government, still prevails in the popular media. Uh, recently, I'm reading a USA Today journalist in a national newspaper telling the key story of Love Canal this way, quote, Love Canal's notorious history began when Hooker Chemical used the abandoned canal from 1942 to 1953 to dump 21,800 tons of industrial hazardous waste. That canal was later capped 
and homes and a school were built on top of it, unquote. Absolutely zero mention of the school board's involvement, no mention whatsoever of eminent domain and the government's ability to force the sale. Also in the 20-teens, here are another piece of journalism. This is a national public radio station. It quite properly praises the grassroots efforts of uh, many of the people in the Love Canal area, mostly housewives who were demanding action in the face of the threat. Uh, Some of the local and state governments were stonewalling. And the NPR station praises the federal government's Superfund project in response, but identifies it as the essential solution to all such environmental problems. Once again, what's not mentioned at all is eminent domain and the fact that it was local governments in permission with state governments and so on that forced the sale and went ahead and did the key developments. But it's important then to say, and this is the important lesson of history here, to realize Love Canal, the disaster, would not have happened without two things. First, the political power of eminent domain, and then second, all of the government officials who were involved, from the school board and the local government on up, being very confident that they would not be held liable if anything went wrong. You can't sue City Hall mentality writ large. Now, this issue is very serious because we do live in a science and engineering intensive society. We all love the many benefits to living that come with a high-tech society. And many of those benefits are made possible only by very sophisticated chemical engineering. But we need to know how to handle the risks that come with that, including hazardous waste. How do we handle the dangerous chemicals that our lifestyle depends upon and keep our environment safe, beautiful, economically efficient, all of the things that a proper environmental philosophy will value? And that means that we have to learn the right lessons from the big mistakes that are made, and Love Canal is a huge, huge mistake. So what we should be asking as a result of the Love Canal case is this. First, Did Love Canal lessen any government's ability to acquire land through eminent domain? Has eminent domain been reformed in any sense as a result of this very clear abuse of that power? Second, we should be asking, were any of the politicians or other government officials ever prosecuted for criminal neglect, for knowingly building a school puncturing the clay barrier that they had been warned about for a government purpose. Third, were any of them, if they were not prosecuted for criminal neglect, forced to pay any sort of civil damages? Did any of them go to prison or otherwise suffer politically? Now, the very sad thing is that the answers to all four of those questions are no, 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 and no. And that is a profound journalistic, legal, and philosophical irresponsibility. In Stephen Hicks's book, Explaining Postmodernism, Skepticism and Socialism from Rousseau to Foucault, he writes an incredibly crafted and well-argued insight into what postmodernism is, why it exists, and why it is dangerous applied in the wrong dose, in the wrong place, as it frequently is in this day and age. Postmodernism has been the most vigorous intellectual movement of the late 20th century. 
in his book, Hicks traces the roots of postmodernism all the way back to the Enlightenment era, where he systematically charts how the age of reason sowed the seeds of unreason that was to follow, making a clear connection between postmodernism to history, leftist politics, and even the ugliness of contemporary art. Hicks presents his thesis with beautiful, easy-to-understand explanations that burn with logic and common sense. So if you've ever wondered why society holds so many assumptions about the world, and you want to understand the chaos of what is happening, Hicks's work in this book provides a huge piece to this puzzle. Why do sceptical and relativistic arguments have such power in the contemporary intellectual world? Why do they have that power in the humanities but not in the sciences? Why is a significant portion of the political left the same left that traditionally promoted reason, science, equality for all and optimism now switch to the themes of anti-reason, anti-science, double standards and cynicism? This book is by far the most helpful resource I have ever come across for understanding why the world is turning into a direction that I just can't comprehend. Pick up your copy of Stephen Hicks's book Explaining Postmodernism, Skepticism and Socialism from Rousseau to Foucault available now on Amazon.com. While you're online, make sure to subscribe to the Open College podcast hosted by Stephen Hicks himself, and please leave a review for it on iTunes or Stitcher. Now back to the podcast. The important thing here is that in the Love Canal case, the private corporation behaved responsibly, and it did so precisely because of its profit motive. Now, the officers of the corporation were likely normal human beings, and normal human beings do not want to poison other people. But the profit motive gave them an additional incentive to act responsibly. They want a positive business reputation. They want to avoid expensive lawsuits. So they did exactly what responsible people should do. But precisely in the Love Canal case, the public government behaved irresponsibly. And it's precisely because its officers had little accountability, either monetary or legal. Adding to all of that, our bad journalism and our bad environmental philosophy, at least the mainstream ones, they have reinforced, or reinforced rather, that irresponsibility. Right? That template is strong in people's mind, and instead of doing serious journalism and serious philosophical investigation, people sloppily just fall back on templates. The subsequent history of the case has been to punish the party that behaved responsibly. Hooker and then Occidental Petroleum, Occidental acquired Hooker in 1968. They have been forced to pay hundreds of millions of dollars in damages. They have been pilloried in the press, and they have suffered much public condemnation. And the subsequent history has been to let the actually irresponsible party off the hook. The members of the Niagara Falls School Board, their enablers in the city's government, had largely been able to avoid public scrutiny for their role. They've been able to avoid having to pay financial costs of the lawsuits and the cleanup. It's all been shifted onto other parties. Now, my point is not that private corporations always behave well or that government officers always behave badly. The point is that all power should be held accountable especially in from the Love Canal case. This is the huge case in American toxic waste history. We should learn that the power of governments to coerce land sales should be scrutinized. It should be limited. Tens of thousands of local governments all around the country still have that largely unchecked power of eminent domain. 
Tens of thousands of politicians still want to build schools, put their names on them and all sorts of other public work projects. They want to acquire land cheaply. They want to enhance their tax revenues. Eminent domain is a gift from God, speaking metaphorically, power that they have. But Love Canal is a very clear example of how those political incentives can lead to environmental disaster. And for those of us who genuinely care about clean and safe environments, that's the political lesson we should be learning. Do the investigation. And by way of internal uh, advertisement for this series, for another case of government-caused environmental disaster, please see the episode on the Bhopal, India chemical spill. The host of the Open College podcast, Dr. Stephen Hicks, is a renowned philosopher and author. His field of study and insights into postmodernism explain how it has become one of the most powerful intellectual movements of our time and what that actually means. If you'd like to access more information from Dr. Hicks himself, then check out his website at www.stephenhicks.org. You'll be able to find details on his latest publications, courses, and philosophical information concerning business ethics, education, intellectual history, and religion. To stay up to date with the latest from Stephen Hicks himself, make sure you've subscribed to the Open College Podcast feed and follow at Open College Podcast on all your favorite social networks. And while you're online, please leave the show a review on iTunes and Stitcher. <laughs>